Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 70 and make haste, O Lord. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, so many of us, even right now in this moment as we come now before your word, we have so many different things happening in our lives. We have many different hurts. We have many different struggles. We have many different fears and even anxieties about life. And so, Lord, as we even come now before your holy word to hear it taught, to learn, to discover more of what you have to say in this great book of Psalms for us, Lord, may we be reminded that you are a faithful Lord, that you reign over all the cosmos, that with you one day is as a thousand years. With you, you are faithful, you are unchanging, you are the same, and you remain the same because you are faithful, faithful to your word, faithful to your promises, faithful to always act consistently with your revealed character in your word. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true and that it has so much to say about the very circumstances and the hurts and the struggles and the pains and the, the fears and the doubts. So Lord, as we look at this text, may our hearts be fixed, not, not on the circumstances of our lives, but on ultimately on the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, as we hear the word. Bless not only the preaching now of your word, but bless, Lord, the hearing of your word. For your name and for your renown, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 70. Psalm 70. Hear what the word of God has to say to us today. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, Great is God. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Now, of the 18 psalms specifically attributed to David in the book 2 of the Psalter, at least 15 appealed to God for shelter from danger or prayed for God to judge those who are doing him harm. And this does not count David's many other compositions elsewhere in the psalms that take up the same theme of deliverance from trouble. Now, it's worth reflecting on the reality of David's frequent trials as well as on his prayers for God to rescue him. David suffered painful and even threatening troubles despite God's love for him and the godliness in which he generally lived. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us that David was a man after God's own heart who received God's promise of an eternal kingship. 
And so if there was a person we might think was exempt from deadly trials and the difficult things of life, it might be David. But far from being preserved from danger by godliness, David was cast into troubles precisely for this reason. In this way, he was a true type of his greater descendant, Jesus Christ. And despite being the perfectly obedient son of God, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as we see in Isaiah 53, 5. And if this was true for David and true for Jesus, we should not be dismissed when we are beset by various enemies. After all, Peter warned us in 1 Peter 4, 12, when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And so, not only is Psalm 70 one of David's many prayers for deliverance, but it is the second psalm that substantially repeats an earlier part of the Psalter. Now, in uh, Psalm 11, we noted that Psalm 53 is close to a verbatim repetition of Psalm 14. Psalm 70 likewise repeats the final section of Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17, with only minor variations. Most likely, having previously written Psalm 40, David saw later use for the concluding verses that are repeated in this psalm today in Psalm 70. There is nothing inappropriate about an author's reusing pieces of his work, and by doing so, David emphasizes what he had previously said. In fact, the theme that we're going to see in this psalm is a, is a repetition of David's appeal for God to listen to his aid. And in just five verses, David mentions the need for haste no fewer than four times in our passage today. And most believers have been in similar situations when only God's urgent intervention can save us. In fact, since every believer's need for Christ's saving work is an urgent matter on which eternal life depends, Psalm 70 offers a model prayer for all who feel their need for salvation. The Apostle Paul held this view in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, when he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so the first point that we're going to consider today is David's prayer for help. David's prayer for help. And the main truth that David wants to show us is that those in distress should call on the name of the Lord in prayer. The ability to pray and the peace that comes through prayer mark the difference between the believer and the person who does not yet know the Lord God. What is it that allows a Christian to endure under great distress, such as the loss of a job, the breaking of relationships, the news of a terrible disease, or even the separation brought about by death? And moreover, how can those who know God not only survive such disasters, but exhibit peace and joy and a spirit of praise, whereas others turn to alcohol, live in denial, or simply crack apart under distress? The answer is that the believer is able to place burdens that are too great for himself into God's hands. And to receive in prayer what Paul described as, in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And so when discussing how to pray, we should typically emphasize the spiritual priorities modeled by Jesus and the apostles. And now normally our prayers should start with adoration and praise, and then should be concerned with the spiritual matters that are primarily on the heart of the Lord. Jesus modeled this in the Lord's Prayer, telling his disciples first to praise God. In Matthew 6, 9, when he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
And then he proceeded to pray for the concerns of God's kingdom in verse 10 of Matthew 6. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Apostle Paul also put a prayerful priority on spiritual matters such as personal godliness and the spread of the gospel. And his prayer for the Thessalonians is typical, and, but he makes no mention of the material situation or the physical well-being of his readers. Instead, thanking God and praying for them that the work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. And so if our praying is to be biblically shaped, then we should also normally devote ourselves first to praying in adoration and thanks to God, and then praying for spiritual priorities of personal godliness, evangelism, and blessing on the Lord's church. And there are, however, exceptions to this rule. As David shows in Psalm 70, he does not have time for a long, elaborate prayer, but raises only an immediate plea for help. In verse 1 of Psalm 70, he says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. And, and our prayers should be less hurried and cover more ground. But when we face a desperate need, David's example in Psalm 70, it assures us that we are invited to pray as simply and directly as we can. And if we consider some of the instances in which David faced dire threats and cried out to God for immediate help, we can see how important and how valuable such prayer is. But when, when the people of Ziph turned against David and betrayed his location to wicked Saul, David prayed for sudden deliverance. And this was recorded in Psalm 54. In his answer, God revealed a sudden Philistine invasion that kept Saul from attacking David. Psalm 34 says that when David had to flee from Abimelech, Psalm 34, 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David was afraid, and so he prayed about it and found that his fear was gone. And moreover, he was aware of God's tangible aid when he says in Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. And so David's reliance on angelic insistence, it connects with the praying experience of Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays for God's help as he faced the cross, and God sent an angel to strengthen his human weakness, as we see in Luke 22:43. And with these and many other examples, we should not hesitate to cry out to God for immediate help in desperate and fearful moments of life. And so what we're seeing already in this psalm is that we can take our hurts, we can take our, our pains, and we can take our struggles to the Lord because He sees them, He knows them, and He, and he cares about us. But we also need to go on to the next point in our time together, and that is David's prayer against his enemies. Now, having prayed for his enemies, David, he second prays about his enemies, and we see this in verses 2-3 through three of Psalm 70, which says, Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame and say, Aha, aha. Now, David makes three prayers about his foes, beginning with a request for God to thwart their evil designs. In verse 2 he says, Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. This is one of the best prayers that we can make, not only against, but also for those who seek to do evil. 
Now, we should certainly pray for the designs of the wicked to be thwarted by God, knowing his will is bent against all evil. And this is true of wicked schemes directed against us personally and at those at work at large in society. But we also pray for God's intervention for the sake of the wicked, just as Jesus taught in Matthew 5:44, to pray for those who persecute you. When we ask God to confuse their plans, this is for their own good, such as George Horn writes, a more horrible confusion and desolation awaits them and all other impenitent sinners at the future revelation of the righteous judgment of God when vengeance must destroy those whom mercy cannot reclaim. And now, not only may Christians pray against the plans of those who seek them harm, but we may do so with a special boldness and awareness of God's own concern. Calvin writes, It is as a fixed principle that the more unjustly our enemies afflict us and the more cruelly they wrong us, God is so much the more disposed to give us help. What we've said about David's prayer for his enemies' confusion may equally be said of their shame. In Psalm 70:12, he says, Let them be put to shame. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. David asked God to convict them of the shamefulness of their actions so that they may be turned back in repentance. After all, if they succeed in evil, this will only encourage them in further evil, drawing them away from God in his salvation. And along these lines, H.C. Leipold notes that David's intention is in no sense the destruction of his opponents, but rather that they may meet with such experiences as may bring them to their senses. And finally, David notes that the particular wickedness of his enemies in their mocking scorn. In Psalm 73, he says, Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, Aha, aha. And David connects most clearly here with Jesus' own experience as he suffered ridicule while bearing the cross for our sins. Matthew 27, uh, 39 through 42 says this, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their, t- wagging their heads. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. And it's precisely because Jesus did not come down from the cross that we should look to him for our salvation. And seeing how Jesus bore such taunts in order to obey the Father's will in saving us, we should be willing to bear insults for his sake as we follow him in the world. This is important because you see, in this world, Jesus says in John 16, 33, you will have tribulation. You're going to have difficulty. In fact, Jesus told us this. In, in, this, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is, this is the truth. In this world, it's not our home. The, this side of the fall, post-fall world that we live in, we're going to be persecuted. That's part of being faithful to Christ. Standing up, speaking up for the name and the honor of Christ in our current cultural moment when we speak out against homosexuality and we speak out against transgenderism, we speak out against statism in our government as people continue to worship the state and, and, and primarily seek the, the only the welfare of the government and, and the continued expansion of the government and not the welfare and the concern uh, and the hurts and the struggles of real people who, who are struggling, many of them, on the streets. 
And this matters because God cares. He cares not only about the person who is rich, he cares about equally about the person who is poor. He sees the heart of man. And, and above all of that, what, what it needs to be said and understood is that God knows the heart of man. And not only does he know the heart of man, he knows our thoughts. He knows our deeds. He sees it all. We cannot fake him out. We cannot play pretend. This is what should humble us. And and we should pray for those who seek to do us harm that God might even open their eyes. That's the greatest kindness that we can do. When other people revile us and they persecute us and they say mean and hurtful things to us, we don't respond in kind. We, as Christians, we remember the example and the ministry of Christ who was reviled and yet he did not respond in kind. Think about Jesus at the desert. He, instead of responding and calling all of the angels down and he could have had a massive force, what did he do? He said to Satan, it is written. To the true Christian, that's an example. It's an example of confidence in the Lord. It's a reminder. Here's our Lord Jesus. He, he is fully God, fully man. He is totally 100% sinless. And because of that, we have a sinless substitute who paid our penalty in our place and for our sin. And this is a reminder for us that not only do we have this one who paid the penalty for us in our place and for our sin, but even now, Jesus' scripture tells us in Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, and, and that the, the sacrifice of Jesus was once and for all time. Jesus said, after all, in John 19, 30, it is finished. And by remembering this, when we're reviled, when people say hurtful and even mean things about us, we need to remember to pray for them. And, and what does God do? He changes our hearts first towards them because, you know what? It, it, it doesn't min- this doesn't minimize the fact that we might get upset, we might get irritated, we might get angry, and, and in our flesh we want to respond. But we need to remember that these people who revile the name of Christ in our culture today, they do so because they are at war with God. They are in open rebellion against God. And what they need is they need the message of the gospel. That's what they need. They are blinded, Paul says, by the prince of the power of the air. They are Ephesians 2. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so the, the, the kindest thing that we can do is keep all the more being unashamed to declare the righteousness that is found only in Christ alone, as Romans 1.16 tells us. And we need to pray. We need to pray even for those in our churches who hurt us and, and it hurts and, it, and then we struggle with it. We need to keep praying. And you know what? As we keep praying, what God's going to do is going to keep changing our hearts. He's going to help us to see that person through his lens, through his word, for his glory, for his honor. I've seen this again and again and again in my life and in the lives of those I've been blessed to walk alongside who have experienced a lot of hurt. Now, we're going to consider uh, our next point now, David's prayer for believers. 
David's third prayer is for other believers. And we see this in Psalm 70, verse 4. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. So we've already said that our prayers normally ought to include spiritual matters for God's people. David's situation was so urgent that instead he prayed for immediate help. But having prayed for his immediate need, he now turns back to the concerns of God's kingdom and the spiritual blessing of his people. And it's important for us to remember other believers when we're suffering trials. We need to realize that other Christians are seeking and serving our Lord, many of them in more difficult situations than we're facing. Otherwise, we tend to become discouraged, thinking that we're the only righteous ones left in the world. This was Elijah the prophet's problem when he sank into self-pity because of his enemies. He said this in 1 Kings 19.10, when he complained, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And yet the Lord reminded Elijah that there were in fact 7,000 other faithful believers who had not bowed down to idols. We will also be encouraged in our trials to know that there are many faithful Christians who have not compromised with the world. And one of the best ways to remember this is to go to our local church where our downcast hearts are often lifted up in the company of committed Christians who are worshiping the Lord also with their own struggles, with their own fears and their own issues. And Christians who become involved in the worldwide cause of gospel missions are especially emboldened by their awareness of heroic Christians throughout the world. And in his prayer for God's people, David provides a good definition of people who have been saved by faith. They are those who seek the Lord and love his salvation. To be a Christian, after all, is to have sought the Lord's salvation in prayer, asking him to forgive your sins for the sake of Christ's atoning death. The unfailing result is that you love the salvation of God as revealed in the Word of God. In a sermon on Psalm 74, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, worked out five ways in which true believers come to love the salvation of God. He says, first, true believers love the Savior, Jesus Christ, as a great worker of our redemption. And when we reflect on the glory that he set aside to endure humiliation for us and gaze on the cross where his love poured out so that we might be forgiven, it is impossible for us to not respond with a great love for Jesus. Second, believers love God's plan of salvation. We marvel that God should offer his own son to be the lamb of God who bore our sin, that God should justify sinners freely through faith in Christ alone, and that God should send his spirit to sanctify us with divine power until, as redeemed sinners, we appear perfect in heaven in the presence of Christ when we stand before him. Third, believers love the good works to which we are saved by the grace of God. We know that we are saved not by good works, but to good works. Christ so changes our lives that we gladly turn from sin and love to do the very things that please, that serve, and glorify our Lord. Charles Spurgeon notes, The sinner loves a salvation from hell. The saint loves a salvation from sin. Fourth, true believers love what salvation reveals about God, especially his infinite and eternal love for us. Spurgeon writes, I believe that even in heaven, with enlarged faculties, it will be a subject of perpetual wonder to us that God could ever love us and save us. And shall we not love the salvation which wells up from the deep fount of the Father's everlasting affection? Fifth, believers love salvation's certainty in God's grace. He, Spurgeon says, 
Nothing remains unfinished which is necessary to remove sin from the believer and give him righteousness before God. By the atonement we are infallibly, effectually, eternally saved, for Christ has become the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. And here is a salvation that every believer adores. Jesus loved me and gave himself to save me to the uttermost forever. Spurgeon concludes, Surely we should have lost sanity as well as grace if we did not love this salvation beyond the choicest joys of earth. If this summary describes the people for whom David is praying, those who seek God and love his salvation, then his prayer highlights the, the Bible's priority on spiritual blessing and spiritual graces. As Psalm 70 verse 4 says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. That's because David has prayed for his own deliverance. And so we may be surprised that he has not yet prayed for earthly and aid for fellow believers, but rather that they would rejoice in God and offer them for his praise. And so David realizes that these spiritual matters are more important both for other believers and for himself. We likewise look in the New Testament and we see that Jesus accepted injustice and persecution so that we might give glory to God the Father in our salvation. And what really matters, David says, is not how long we're able to live, but whether our lives were spent rejoicing in God and giving him praise. What really matters is not the circumstances that we experience, but the faith that we exercise and that we apply to the circumstances of our lives. James Boyce says, for that is real victory. Not that we should escape our troubles, though we can pray for deliverance and are often delivered by God when we do, but rather that we should be able to praise God for whatever he chooses to do with us. Now, Job was one of the most afflicted men in history. He lost possessions. He lost children. He lost health. He lost reputation. He was able, nonetheless, to triumph through faith. And when his afflictions came, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I come, came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in Job 1, 20 through 21. And so Job knew that, that God would be exalted in his terrible trials, even if he did not know how God was going to work things out for his salvation. Like Job, we're called to trust God, to seek God, to love his salvation. And then when trouble comes, our highest calling, as David prayed, is to rejoice in God and declare that God is great in Psalm 70 verse 4. You know, trials, what they do is, is they have a way of exposing what is really in our hearts. Put another way, our trials reveal our theology, which is why we should be grounding our lives daily in the reading and the study and the memorization and the meditation upon God's word. That's why we daily need, or every week at the, on the Lord's Day, every Sunday, we need to be sitting under biblically qualified preaching from a biblically qualified man. That, that can help us to, that can equip us in the word of God to rightly handle the word of God. As 2 Timothy 2.15 says, you know, uh, this is so important because as we're reading the word, as we're studying the word, as we're meditating on the word, what God is doing is he's preparing our hearts. He's preparing our hearts to, to not only to grow in the grace of God, but also to actually grow. And, and to prepare ours for when we hear the word preached. 
You see, everything in our Christian life should ultimately point towards the Lord's Day. Monday through Saturday are just another preparation as we go out into the world to do our various vocations and places. We scatter on the Lord's Day, or excuse me, we gather together on the Lord's Day to scatter during uh, the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, wherever the Lord has placed us. If that's in our home or, or that's out in the marketplace, or maybe we work from home or whatever we end up doing. But God has placed us where he has need of us. And we need to remember this because we all face trials of various kinds. We all suffer in a variety of ways. And as one of my mentors, who's now at the Lord, says, God hand tailors the situations of our lives. He does. The, The suffering and the hardships and the challenges under the providence of God, he is using in your life to help you, to conform you evermore into the image and likeness of Christ. And that is that is actually the best news in the world. Nothing in our life is out of the gaze of God. He sees it, he knows it, and he knows what you're going through. As I said earlier, God sees, God knows, and God cares. And that's especially true in the midst of your suffering when you think that God has forgotten you and when you feel that God isn't near. God is near. He is as near as he can be. You may not feel him, but you can know based on the truth of Scripture that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that he will never leave, he will never abandon his own because scripture tells us this. And we could take scripture to the bank because Titus 1-2 says that God will never lie. God will always act in accord with his revealed nature in the word. And so you can trust the Lord in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your blessing, in the midst of your prosperity, in the midst of every situation of your life, you can trust God the Lord. And so what David is going to do in the next section of our time together in Psalm 70 is he's going to give a summation of biblical faith. And by by here, he's going to conclude his prayer with a verse that at first may seem very insignificant to us, but actually summarizes the whole of biblical faith. In verse 5 of Psalm 70, he says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And in concluding his prayer this way, what he's acknowledging is that he has no right in and of himself to make any demands of God. Biblical faith does not presume on God in such a way that we name and claim the blessings simply because we want them or think that we deserve them. To the contrary, biblical faith, it begins with renouncing any claim before God and first declaring our utter poverty, our utter need. As Charles Spurgeon once said, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need. Our prayers must always yield before God's sovereign majesty, acknowledging his perfect right to do whatever he wills, together with our complete dependence on his grace and mercy. And David's confession of poverty and weakness, it also refutes the commonly held idea that we're able to handle our own circumstances in our own way, in our own power, in our, in our own sufficiency. David, however, does not pray, Lord, I can handle most of this in my own resources and strength. I, I just need a little help from you. Some people think this way about getting into heaven as well as handling their problems and trials of life. And it, and it was 
correct it was to correct this view that Jesus began his famous Beatitudes by declaring, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5.3. Jesus was saying that biblical faith begins with confessing that we have nothing to commend ourselves before God. We are sinners who have personally offended God by our sins. We are corrupt and thus justly deplorable in his holy sight. We must come humbling ourselves and calling only on his grace. I am poor and needy, David prays in verse 5. And here he admits his reliance on the mercy of God, not only for the salvation of his soul, but also for the handling of the problems of life. Are you willing today, right now, to pray to God as one who utterly depends on the mercy of God in Christ alone? If not, you do not have biblical faith, and you cannot receive the saving help that only God can give you. You have to navigate the troubles of this life in your own power, and in the end you will stand before God's holy judgment with no atonement to forgive you of your sins. Here is the stumbling block of Christ in his gospel on which many are crushed today. The first step towards the salvation that God offers to us through Jesus Christ is to humble ourselves in David's confession, which is the very last thing that sinful people want to do. And this is why Christians continue to proclaim the holy standards and the righteous, righteous judgment of God's law, so that sinners may be convicted and humbled before the Lord. And since man hates this very message above all others, we must also pray for God's Spirit to regenerate hard hearts by His Word, so that sinners may declare their own poverty and need and come to Christ for salvation. Now, David's second step of faith that consists of calling on God as Savior. In verse 5 of Psalm 70, David says, Hasten to me, O God, you are my help and my deliverer. Those who come to God for salvation have believed his promises to save and call on him for grace. Turn to me and be saved, God says, all the ends of the earth in Isaiah 45, 22. Come to me, Jesus implored repeatedly, promising that those who call on him for help and salvation will receive rest, forgiveness, and eternal life in Matthew eleven twenty eight. And John 7, 37-38, coming to Christ in faith, it requires us to renounce every other vain hope and instead lay hold of his saving work alone through a trusting faith in Christ alone. And Christ promises that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And John 6, 37 and John 10, 4. Now, let's talk about the last statement in this psalm. The last statement of Psalm 70 connects with David's opening plea for God to come quickly and also with our urgent need of the salvation that comes only through Christ. In verse 5, David says, You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Scripture answers this plea by telling us that whenever we humble ourselves and call on Christ for salvation, we are immediately saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. John 3.36 teaches, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The Southern Presbyterian preacher Benjamin Morgan Palmer tells of ministering to a dying sinners through the dreadful epidemic that struck New Orleans in 1867. Hastily summoned to the bedside of one dying young man, the minister pressed upon him God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. The man answered that he would change his life if God would spare him. And, and the minister said, My dear friend, Palmer replied, This is the last device of Satan to destroy your soul. I tell you faithfully, there is no future for you in this world. You are now passing. And whilst I speak through the gateway of death and 
What you do, you must do at once or be lost forever. He then asserted the Bible's teaching that salvation must come through faith in Christ alone, rejecting all merit or works of our own. And seeing that time was running out, Palmer pleaded, Do you remember the story of the penitent thief upon the cross? His time was short, just as yours, but one brief prayer, not longer than a line, expressed his faith, and that was enough. So you see that it is never too late. After a brief pause, the man opened his eyes with a changed expression. He said, No, it is not too late. Thank God it is not too late. Do you trust now in the Lord Jesus, Palmer asked. Yes, I do. He is my Savior, and that I am not afraid to die, the man confessed. And to the pastor's ear, it was as though a note from the song of the harpers had fallen from heaven into that chamber of death. Quickly, the dying man whispered, Will you write to my father? Yes, certainly, Palmer said, but what shall I tell him? Tell him I have found Jesus who is part of my sins, and I am not afraid to die. He will meet with me in heaven. And with those words, the man breathed his last, and Palmer prayed with joy over his reception into heaven, knowing that God comes in haste to answer the prayer of faith. Let's uh, wrap up our time by talking about the soon coming of the Lord. After all, when David prays, You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay, in Psalm 70, verse 5, Christians should especially think of the soon return of Christ from heaven. The prayer for Christ's return was often on the tongue of early believers they, who lived under intense state persecution, and they cried out to God for Jesus to return quickly to save his church. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And like David in Psalm 70, even the saints in heaven cry out, according to Revelation 6.10, which says, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Such prayers should be on the lips of believers today, realizing that our own efforts, even aided by the Spirit of Christ, will not put an end to unbelief, to mocking, to injustice and persecution. Instead, as Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. While still living in this wicked world, we long for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And in the final book of the Bible, Jesus gives two answers to the church's prayer for him to make haste in coming to save when he says in Revelation 22.17-20, Surely I am coming soon, and he adds, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. See, this is the invitation of the word of God. Come, come to the Lord Jesus. When, when Paul was preaching to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, he says to this man, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved in Acts 16.31. That's the good news. And in fact, Paul says it this way in, in Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in our place and for our sin. It wasn't just because we were so good and we merited. Romans 1 through 3 very clearly tells us that we do not merit salvation. We, we sin morally. We sin ethically. We sin, we sin spiritually. We sin in every single way. And sin transgresses. It violates. It crosses the barrier. It misses the mark of God's standard. And so we must repent personally and put our faith and our trust in Christ alone. And if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you on the basis of 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 10, uh, 9 through 17 and Acts 
4.12 and many, many other texts to repent, to believe, and put your hope and trust in Christ alone. And if you are a Christian, I, I plead with you to come, to come like David prays in this, this psalm, and to come before the Lord who sees you, who knows you, who knows what's going on. In the midst of all of our hurt and all the troubles of our life, we have one who is faithful and true and who always will be faithful and true. He's enough and he always will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, even now, are a high priest. And even now, as we, even now, as I pray, Romans 8 says that you intercede with words beyond our even understanding. Even now. You, you plead our cause. Even with these weak and feeble prayers, you stand as 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, as our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Lord, we, we are not together right, altogether righteous. And yet you are. And yet because of the Lord Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, you have imputed uh, your righteousness to our account, and now you do not see us as we ought to be seen. You see us through the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. You, we are united to Christ by faith in your name. We are joined together with Christ. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are empowered by the Spirit. You take the word of God and you convict your own. You bring the dead to life. And you do this not for our glory. You do it all for your glory. Lord, help us to be faithful to the word. Help us to trust the work of the word to do what it does and trust your spirit to do what you do. Open eyes, bring conviction, bring comfort, bring the help. Oh, Lord. And Lord, we right now, we just want to confess something as your people. We are so prone to our own sufficiency, thinking that because we're, we have so much education and wealth and talents and abilities, and yet, Lord, we are so needy. As Spurgeon said, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. Oh, and, and even as Newton said, this is a well-instructed Christian who knows not only their need of Christ, but their ongoing need of it and the, and the great sufficiency of Christ. So, Lord, help us to even be reminded of these truths and help us to take it evermore home and help us to daily take the lessons. Help us to be preparing our hearts and our minds every day by reading and studying and meditating on your word and taking it home so that we might grow and we might abound and we might even flourish all the more in Christ and we might make disciples, and we might be even more zealous in our evangelism love, love, and love for others fueled by a love for you. Help us, Lord, to, love, to see people the way you do, to treat them the way that you do. Help the, us to honor uh, the great commandment and the great commission. Help us to lovingly and out of hearts of gratitude repent of our sin, put it to death. Help us to Help us to repent of our apathy and even, even our lack of holiness in our speech and our conduct. Lord, help us to grow in grateful gratitude and holiness and obedience for the honor and glory of Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.